hopefully the last day that I have that I get to wear a sweater, um, and it's hard to put a microphone on a sweater. Um, this morning, um, I was helping Sarah get the boys ready, and I told her that I needed to go jump in the shower, and she said, "Don't do that. That's not safe." <sighs> yes. And that's when I figured that maybe my dad jokes were getting a little out of hand. I'm rubbing off on her a little too much, apparently. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you will, over to the, uh, the book of Zechariah. And as Dale stated this morning, uh, it's no secret that this is one of my favorite minor prophets. Uh, and it is. This is a fantastic book. It is beautifully written. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to read it yet, uh, do so today or do so this week. Um, it is the longest minor prophet. It's 14 chapters. Uh, I've heard it's joked that uh, Zechariah never realized that he was writing one of the minor prophet books when he wrote his book uh, because it is so long. But nevertheless, uh, there are some very important things in there. We'll obviously be talking about those this morning. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been journeying through the minor prophets together. Uh, books that hold some major profitable teachings that uh, all still apply today. Next week is our last minor prophet in the series, the book of Malachi. And this week, this week's book is Zechariah. It's admittedly one of the tougher minor prophets, not because it was 14 chapters long and it takes so long to read. It doesn't really take that long, about 45 minutes or so. But it's difficult because of all the symbolism that's in it and what's known as apocalyptic language. It's still an important book to study, and I hope uh, that you had a chance to read through it this week. If not, again, please do so this week. Um, And when you read it, try to find the applicable things to you for your life. Uh, Now, we don't obviously have time to go through the entire book this morning, so we'll likely miss some of these teachings. Um, So again, please take some time to do that. So this morning, um, I want to get some history and the timeline out of the way so that we can have a better understanding of the context of this book, who Zechariah is speaking to in his historical surroundings. I know this stuff may sound repetitive, as it's similar to what we talked about last week in Haggai, and it may sound boring, uh, but covering... This historical context is extremely important when you study the Bible, especially when you study the Old Testament, or whenever you study any specific teaching. Because when you look at applications, or when you look for applications, you have to understand the context. The context is very important, because if you don't, then you may be taking the teaching out of context, right? For example, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, it's something that many people know, something that we've heard often. It's something that often accompanies sympathy cards or graduation cards, etc. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to uh, plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans uh, to give you a future and a hope. Now that statement, it sounds good in a card. But that statement is not for us. <laughs> that statement was, uh, it was given to God's people. God's people who were in exile at the time. It was a promise, it was an encouragement that after 70 years in exile in Babylon, He would return them to their homes. He would return a remnant back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And the plans that He had for that remnant, the plans for welfare and not for evil, to give them a future and to give them a hope, that was Jesus. That's the meaning of that verse. And today, it sounds good in a card, But it's not what it means because Jesus has already come. 
The plans that God had for Israel have already been fulfilled. And that's something that we're going to talk about this morning. And context in all of this is very important. So Zechariah, in the historical context of his book, the Babylonians, again we talked about this a little bit last week, the Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Uh, They do this because of the wickedness of Israel. That's not why they did it, but they were sent there by God to do it because of Israel's, or Judah's, Wickedness and constant apostasy that was going on in Judah and in Israel. Now Israel had already been destroyed and had been overthrown by the Assyrians. And so when Babylon comes in, they just take over for the Assyrians, basically. They overthrow the Assyrians, they take over Israel, they take over Judah. Um, The Babylonians, of course, when they come in and destroy Jerusalem. They also destroy that first temple that Solomon built. That's what we talked about last week, and and many people were killed, and those who were not ki- were, who were not killed were taken off into captivity. So then you fast forward about fifty years, and the Persians come in and they overthrow Babylon. And these were things that we saw prophesied by Daniel during the, the uh, captivity of the of God's people. And then the, the Persian king chooses a few years later to let some, not all, but let some of these Jewish captives return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. Now, they go along, uh, when they go, they go along with an appointed governor, an appointed ruler who is along the line of David. Uh, his name is Zerubbabel. Now, the name Zerubbabel is Babylonian, right? Babel. Ever heard of the Tower of Babel? Babel. Um, so uh, Zerubbabel leads them out of exile and back into Jerusalem along with um, the high priest uh, Joshua. And uh, these two characters are going to be very important in our discussion this morning uh, because uh, Zechariah uses these two men as uh, symbols. Uh, sim- some of the symbology that he uses in it, he uses them to, to point to the things that are to come. So they get back to Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild. We talked about this last week. It took them about 20 years to rebuild the temple. And thanks to the teaching, of course, of the two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who began prophesying at about 520 B.C. So they stirred up the people of, the te- they stirred up the people of Jerusalem and they start rebuilding the temple of God. Now Haggai, that we talked about last week, focused on the teachings that encouraged the people. And Zechariah focuses more so on the leaders and the atmosphere of Jerusalem while the temple is being rebuilt. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David, as I mentioned before, and we all know um, that the Messiah, at least we should know, that the Messiah will come from the line of David. Um, and Joshua, uh, who is also uh, a part of this, the high priest, he is, he is used along with Zerubbabel, with the, uh, along with the rebuilding of the temple as well. So you have uh, three symbols, really, that's going on here. You have Joshua the high priest, you have Zerubbabel the king, and you have the people who are rebuilding the temple and the act of rebuilding the temple. All of these things, along with coming back to Jerusalem, Zechariah uses these things to paint a picture of what is to come. The people, of course, are also a big part of this. And their big question throughout all of this, throughout Haggai's teaching, through Zechariah's teaching, and even Malachi's teaching, and then the 400 years of silence that uh, comes after Malachi, their big question is, how long? How long, God, must we wait for these promises to be fulfilled? We've been punished for decades, for centuries. The city and the temple, they've been destroyed, and now we've come out of captivity. Is this now the time? Is this the time for the Messiah to come? Is this time for your promises to be fulfilled? When is this king going to reign? Where is the peace? 
And the whole point of the book of Zechariah, the message that he gives to the people is, and this is a spoiler alert, keep faithful, keep trusting and being faithful to God and know that He is not done with Jerusalem yet. Keep the faith. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Right? We just talked about Jeremiah. God's people are always needing that encouragement and reminder. When you look throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's, all of these minor prophets have had this message of encouragement that says, God's not done with you yet. You're a terrible people. You're sinning. You're wicked. But God's not done with you yet. And so, they get these promises. They get these encouragements that the Messiah is coming and the people wait and they wait and they wait. 500 years. And of course, today, we know that the whole story has been fulfilled. We know the ending. We know what happens some 500 years after uh, Zechariah writes these things. The birth of Christ, the Messiah. So you have this destroyed city of Jerusalem and a destroyed temple, but it will get rebuilt. But it's still going to be another 70 years before Nehemiah comes along and the city wall gets rebuilt. Jerusalem basically is sitting in timeout for 500 years. In fact, at the close of Malachi, the prophets go silent. There's about 400 years in which God's people sit in timeout, waiting and waiting. The only thing keeping them going, giving them hope, are these promises of God. The promises that one day the glory of God will return to Jerusalem, that it will be in the temple once again, and one day the Messiah will return and establish His kingdom and it will cover over all the earth. One day peace will be renewed and restored because in this kingdom all nations will be welcome, Jews and Gentiles, and they wait. And they wait. Now we need to understand this because when the New Testament was written, it was written in a way, uh, when it was written about Christ, it was written in a way um, assuming that the readers would already be familiar with or would soon become familiar with these prophets and their teachings, the promises that God had made for, for the people of Israel. Think about it. The first century churches taught the gospel of Jesus Christ alongside these teachings from the Old Testament to show... Look at the blessings that you now have. That was their message. And that's really our message today as well, isn't it? The promises have been fulfilled and they are now ours to have. And they're ours and yours if you obey the commands of Christ. It's impossible to understand the Old Testament and the promises that are found within without Jesus. Without Jesus, everything in Zechariah that is said to come makes zero sense. Without Jesus... Haggai and what he said about the temple being filled once again with God's glory doesn't make sense because Jesus was the one who filled it with glory. You can't truly understand Jesus without the Old Testament. At least not in His fullness. I mentioned this in class this morning. You can understand something about Jesus by reading the New Testament. But you can't understand all of Him without the Old Testament. It's vital to understand the expectation, the hope, and who the Messiah really is. Now when we call Jesus Bar-Joseph, which would have been the name that he was known by, Jesus, son of Joseph is what that means, Jesus Bar-Joseph, when we call him Jesus Christ, or when we call him the Christ, do we really understand what we're saying? I think some people say Jesus Christ thinking that Christ was just his last name. No, Bar-Joseph was his last name. Christ is a title. It's a holy title that has been given to him. Christ comes from the, uh, from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed. 
which is what Messiah means, the anointed one. Christ means Messiah, God's anointed one, the one who was to come. And in order to know who this Messiah was supposed to be, the hope that was being waited for, the promises surrounding him, you have to look at the Old Testament. And you have to look at the prophets. So here's a quick outline if you're taking notes of the book of Zechariah. The first six chapters are eight of Zechariah's visions. These are full of symbolism and that apocalyptic language that I talked about. They're not impossible to understand, but they're not easy either. So just a warning, if you are planning on reading this book this week, that these, are, uh, these may seem a little funny, but don't skip them. Read through them. Read through them a couple times until you understand them a little bit. And if you have questions, you can always email me. Now the next two chapters are more straightforward. They contain four messages, four sermons addressing some of the questions that the people were, were bringing to Zechariah. Things like mourning and fasting that they've been doing for years. Should we keep doing these things? Stuff like that. Zechariah uh, addresses those. And the final two chapters cover uh, two burdens. Uh, those two burdens are the future of all nations and the future of Israel in general. Now this morning, we're going to jump around in this book a bit and look specifically at what Zechariah says about the co- coming Messiah. We're all here this morning in order to honor and memorialize His death through our partaking of the Lord's Supper. And and Jesus is our foundation. He's the living stone on which the temple is being built, right? What we talked about last week in which we are all the living stones. We need to better understand the Christ. We need to better understand the Messiah, our Lord, uh, Jesus, right? Jesus isn't just a teacher. Anyone can teach you how to live a better moral life. Mr. Rogers spent his career doing that, right? Every children's show, Daniel Tiger teaches my kids how to live a better moral life. Veggie tales, talking vegetables can do it. We don't need Jesus to do that. That's not Jesus' role. Jesus isn't just a healer either. We have doctors today that can do that. Jesus is more than all of that. We don't need a teacher. We don't need a healer. And that's also not what the people of Jerusalem were waiting for. It's not what they needed either. And it's not what humanity needs. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It's what we heard uh, Dale read this morning. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Another translation says, Righteous and victorious is He. The Messiah, the one that is to come, is coming as a King. And He's not just coming as, as any King. Israel had many kings, some good, some bad. But He's coming as a righteous and victorious King. One who is coming to free those who are enslaved to claim victory over the enemy. And while this King is righteous and victorious, Zechariah goes on to say that he is humble and mounted on a donkey. Even more so, he's on a colt. The coal of a donkey. Or the foal of a donkey. Not the coal of a donkey. The foal of a donkey. Now if you're familiar with Jesus' life on this earth, you hear that, and hopefully your mind goes to Jerusalem, and the triumphal entry into the city that's uh, recorded in in all four gospel accounts in Mark chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 21. Turn over to Mark chapter 11. We're going to read that. Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12. All four gospel accounts tell of this story of Jesus entering entering Jerusalem. Listen to Mark's account here in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. 
Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Meaning that it was young, right? Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, or said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. There he is, bringing God's glory into the temple again. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. These people saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem on this donkey, on this this colt. This was everything they had been waiting for. They had been promised that that this king would be coming in. Great and glorious and victorious and, and, and righteous, but humble, riding on a baby donkey. They said in verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna. It is the triumphant one, the victorious one, the righteous one, the one who saves. If you don't know of the promise that's proclaimed in Zechariah, then this scripture makes no sense. Why would anybody just lay down stuff in the roadway for some guy riding in on a donkey? Without knowing what is promised in Zechariah, this doesn't make sense. We lose the context. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Now, we, we just talked about the victory that was promised of the coming king. And many of those who lined the streets as Jesus entered into the city through that, uh, they um, thought, they thought that Jesus coming in, they thought that this coming king, they thought this means victory over Rome. This means uh, a freedom from, from the oppression of Rome to bring them peace and independence. Now prior to that, the Jews were waiting for the victorious king to come and overthrow Greece. And before that, they were waiting for a, a triumphant Messiah to come in and, and overthrow Persia. And that's the kingdom who is in charge right now in Zechariah's time. They thought that the victory that was promised was to be over earthly things. They thought the kingdom was a physical kingdom, but the victory that this king would bring is over Satan. Satan is the one who has enslaved the entire world. It's not the earthly captivity of Babylon or Persia, etc., but the, the spiritual slavery from which we need free. If you really think about it, we know that God has raised up rulers. They've, God has given them authority in the world. And so God is the one who's putting Israel into slavery. So God can take them out of slavery, right? But the slavery that they are in is the slavery of sin. Satan is, is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, the New Testament teaches Satan told Jesus uh, during the temptation that all the nations had been given to him and he could do anything he wanted to with them because the world is enslaved to Satan. Listen to what uh, Zechariah writes here in chapter 3. 
Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Satan's standing right there. Satan says, this is my world. I have control over this. These are, these are my people. They're in my bondage. And he's the accuser. And he's lying to Joshua. He's lying to the people of Jerusalem, etc. Saying something like, God's done with you. You've, you've messed up so much, God doesn't need you anymore. He's done with you. You're mine now. Then in verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? God has saved Jerusalem out of the fire. Plucked it up out of the fire saying, I'm not done with Jerusalem yet. I have a plan for them. And what was this plan? To bring forth the Messiah, His anointed one, to save Jerusalem and the entire world from the enslavement of Satan. Listen to this teaching from Paul to the Hebrews in chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. That through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you understand that Jesus' mission and the mission that He ultimately, ultimately accomplished was to gain victory over Satan. It wasn't to teach, it wasn't to heal, but it was to gain victory over Satan. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 reads, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Another translation, a thought-for-thought translation reads, He defeated the rulers and powers of the spiritual world With the cross, He won the victory over them and led them away as defeated and powerless prisoners for the whole world to see. You see, church, Jesus isn't just a teacher and a healer. He did those things, but His main purpose is to triumph over sin, to triumph over Satan. The world needs moral teaching, right? I think we can all agree to that. The world needs healing. But the world needed and still needs more than anything to gain victory over death. To gain victory over Satan and his power in the world. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is our David, defeating Goliath when others turned away. He is our protector who walked into the valley of the shadow of death and brought his light and quenched that shadow and arose victorious. He has set the captives free. Amen? And how... How would or or how can Jesus accomplish this? Turn back to Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. He would do so not only by being the king, but by also being a priest. In Zechariah, again, remember, you have Zerubbabel, the governor, not really a king, but he's a ruler. He's been appointed to rule over these people in Jerusalem. And Joshua, the high priest, these two are used by Zechariah symbolically as they are rebuilding the temple to show that the Messiah would be both king and priest who would build up a better, more glorious temple, which we talked about last week. Look here in verse 12 and 13. And say to him, thus says the Lord of the hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord The title or the name, the branch, is used throughout the prophets. It's it's important in a couple ways. And I always smile when I read this because of what I've learned over the past year about the word branch. And I'll get to that in a second. But Isaiah chapter 11, 
verses 1 through 2 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5-6 through reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Now these prophecies are referring to Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Jesus hailed from Nazareth, right? He's referred to in Scripture sometimes as Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is a name that is derived from the Hebrew verb naser, and I probably butchered that. But naser is the word that is used for branch. Nazareth means the city of the branch, basically. When you see Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus to the Nazarene, you're seeing Jesus the branch. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now verse 13 here in Zechariah. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. The true and final temple of the Lord will be built up not by Zerubbabel and Joshua, but by the branch, by the Messiah. Then Zechariah says, And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. In other words, the Messiah will be both king and priest. Peace forged between their offices, becoming one, basically. So how does this king, how does this priest achieve victory and overcome Satan? And he did it by defeating sin. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men who are a sign. Zechariah just points right out. He says, uh, actually in in the NIV it says, Behold, I will bring my servant... uh, I'm sorry, in the NIV it calls them, it says, symbolic of things to come. These men are symbolic of things to come. Zechariah points it out plain as day. That he's not literally talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel, but he's using them as symbols in what is to come. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's how the king gains victory. The Messiah will remove sin and defeat sin in one day. The branch, the Messiah, will be a king. He will be a high priest and he will deal with sin and he will conquer it in one day. Turn over to chapter 13, verse 1. And on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The song that we sang this morning. When Dale Dale sang that, I smiled. I was like, yes! Does that sound familiar? On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David. Now the fountain, 
obviously represents the water that we have in baptism. But did you also know that on the day that Christ died, a fountain was literally opened. Water flowed from Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. That gives me chill. I have goosebumps right now. That's what we all need, isn't it? Not to be pierced in the side, but we need the water. We need the blood of Jesus. We don't need someone to teach us to be good people. That's nice. But what we need is freedom from the shackles of sin. The Messiah will remove all iniquity in one day, and on that day when that happens, a fountain will be opened up for all Israel and all nations that will cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. A reconciling fountain, if you will. But how can this Messiah, who is both king and high priest, how can he cleanse the people from sin? Looking at the law, this requires a sacrifice of atonement. What in the world could be done in order to take away all iniquity? What sacrifice is there out there that can do this? Turn over and look at Zechariah chapter 11, verses 7 through 14. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union, and I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who, left, who are left to devour the flesh of one another. And I took my staff Favor, and I broke it annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as, as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. The sheep traders determined that this shepherd was only worth 30 shekels or 30 pieces of silver. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Does all that sound familiar? How many pieces of silver was Judas paid to betray Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. And where did he throw those pieces of silver after Jesus died? Into the house of the Lord. And what did Judas do after all of that? He hung himself in what is known as what? The potter's field. In chapter 13, verse 7, we read that the shepherd will be struck, he will be beaten, and that all the sheep will be scattered. Then in chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Do you see all of the pieces coming together here? Do you see the glorious and wonderful plan of God that was laid out some 500 years before Jesus would even enter the world, 500 years before Jesus' birth. 
God speaks through Zechariah and says that a king would come and he would be victorious and be righteous and bring salvation and he would enter into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We learn that not only would he be king, but he would also be high priest. And as both king and high priest, he would overcome sin and he would overcome and cleanse iniquity, all iniquity, in one day. And he would do it by being the shepherd who was rejected and struck, bought with 30 pieces of silver. He would do it by being pierced due to the transgressions of others. And when all of that was done, God broke the covenant He had with the Jews and He opened a new kingdom. He ruled over by this king, by this high priest, that whoever would come to the shepherd could come in. They would enter in through a fountain of forgiveness that was opened up. All of this is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when that fountain is opened up. When all who heard the words of Peter, convicting them of killing the Messiah, or as we read here in verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 12, all those who pleaded for mercy, sorrowful of their transgressions as they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced. And God forgives their sins. And it's not just for Jerusalem, but it's for all nations as well. Zechariah points this out in chapter 8, verse 23. Now we have to realize who Jesus is. He is three things. He is the King, He is the High Priest, and He is also the sacrifice that was offered by the High Priest to deal with sin. We need to know that that we who are in Christ Jesus have it better off than anyone who has ever lived in any time in the world. No matter what's going on in the world, if you are in Christ, you have it better. We have more promises, more blessings. We live in the time that Zechariah, Haggai, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, Joel, you name the prophet, they all long to be a part of this time. They waited and waited and waited and pleaded, is it time for the Messiah yet? Haven't we suffered enough? 500 years, they still have to wait. One last scripture and we'll finish up this morning. Luke chapter 2. Something that, again, without the Old Testament prophecies, without what we've learned from Zechariah this morning, without all of that, it makes no sense. But we know now, we've heard Zechariah's prophecy, God's word through Zechariah, so now Simeon's words and reaction in the temple all make sense. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was waiting, just like all the other Jews were waiting, for Israel to be saved. He was waiting for this Messiah. It says the Holy Spirit was upon him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came to the Spirit, or he came in the Spirit, into the temple, meaning the Spirit led him to the temple. And when the parents, being Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. God kept his promises. 
And that's something to praise God about. Amen? That's something that we can sit here on Sunday or go throughout our week every day and be thankful that God kept His promises. The wait is over. Jesus has come, our King, our High Priest, the Messiah is here. It's exactly what Anna proclaims. If you go down a few more verses in Luke chapter 2 and verse 38, she's proclaiming to all who are waiting with her. She said, And coming up at that very hour, Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, or speak of him, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Everybody's waiting for it. And he's here. The promises of God have been fulfilled, and the question is: do you believe? There were many in Jerusalem who didn't. There were many in Israel who didn't. And they took that shepherd, they struck him, they pierced him for our transgressions and put him on a cross. And while that sounds terrible, it was all part of God's plan. He was the sacrifice. He willingly got up on the cross. We've sang the song before. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have done that. He could have avoided the cross, but he didn't. He prayed to God even. He said, God, take this cup from me. But when God didn't respond, at least scripturally, we don't have a a response from God there, Jesus got up and said, the time has come. And He willingly got up on that cross. So if you do believe, and you're wondering, how can I come to the shepherd? How can I be a part of this kingdom? Well, the answer that has been pointed out both in Zechariah and throughout the New Testament is that you can do so through the fountain that has been opened for all, which is baptism. The waters of baptism. So listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, I don't want you to take my word for it. But take what the Lord has provided through His inspired word. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the branch, the promised King and High Priest, all these things that we've been talking about this morning, Jesus provides not just teaching, not just healing, but above all, He he offers freedom. Incredible, unimaginable freedom from the bondage of sin. Without Jesus, without His sacrifice and what He did to conquer sin and remove all iniquities in one day, without that, we are all dead. Do we understand that? No hope of eternal life without Jesus. None. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the branch that was brought forth as both king and high priest. And notice, that's all present tense. Because He lives. Amen? And as our high priest, He offered the final and perfect sacrifice. His own blood. His own life that atones, covers over sin. Atonement, and I know I've touched on this before, atonement means it's basically an exchange, a life for a life, to cover over sins. And Jesus was that life that was offered up in exchange for ours. He covers over our sin if we are in Him. When we take refuge in Him. When God looks at His adopted children who have been made so through baptism into Christ for the forgiveness of sin. When God looks at His adopted children, He sees Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who covers over us. A spotless, sinless, and perfect Lamb. 
And because of that, because of Jesus, anyone who is in Christ Jesus, who have been baptized for the remission of sins and remain faithful to Him and obey His commands, are free from the shackles of sin. We are guiltless from the pains and the scars that were left by those shackles. And we have nothing to be guilty of anymore. We are now innocent in God's eyes, but the shackles of sin, they're always looming. It says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion waiting to devour his prey. He's waiting to reapply those shackles at his earliest convenience. But as an adopted child of God, as one who is united with Christ, those shackles can again be removed through repenting and turning back toward God. Repentance, of course, is turning away from a life of sin. You turn away from sin and turn back to God. Think about it. If God is waiting for you with open arms, if He wants you to come to Him, which He does, He wants everybody to come to Him. If He's waiting for you with open arms, how are you going to embrace Him with your hands shackled behind your back? The beauty of Christ and the beauty of the Gospel is that Christ intercedes. He's covered over those sins so that we can remove those shackles and we can embrace God just as He is embracing us. So if you're here this morning and you wish to become a Christian by obeying the commands of Christ, by turning away from a life of sin, by dying to self, dying to sin, and being buried with Christ in baptism, united with Him by God in the water, and raised out of the water to a newness of life free from sin, if you have that need or if you have any other need that the church can assist you with, please come now while we stand and sing.